I mean, just what a great picture of how God's moving in places that we don't even have a day-to-day awareness of. And I love that the way God's wired the church is that we get to do this together. And so I'm super grateful to have you guys here so we could share with you a little bit of all that God's doing. Um, Man, it's just, it it feels like a great way to start our week is, is to hear what God's doing. We've got Joel in an Arsenal shirt. It's just, there's a lot of things going well this morning. Hey, listen, we've been in this series where we're going through First Peter, and we've looked at this idea of how as a church we should respond to an uncertain world. And in the, the, the sentence that struck me in the first chapter way back five weeks ago was that we are to respond with an indescribable joy. It's, it's another way of saying that is a joy that, that we can't even use words to understand. And so this idea of being a joyful people in the midst of uncertainty really, I think, gripped me because I found that in my day-to-day life, I don't always feel like joy is the word that describes what I'm experiencing. And I wonder if maybe all of us find ourselves in that place where on the one hand we can come to church and we can sing and we can hear who Jesus is and we can maybe have this moment of peace where we feel at one with that idea but then we leave and we get back into our week and this idea of joy seems very distant and far away and we kind of fall into this I don't want to call it a trap but almost this rut of being these people that aren't marked by the joy that scripture talks about. I think there's a few different reasons for that, but we find ourselves where our life almost feels like it's got like a Hot Topic dashboard confessional vibe. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying that's bad. If that's you, you can finish putting your eyeliner on and we can talk later. It's all good. Um, this side of the room may want to Google that. And so um, we'll, we'll get you up to speed. And so listen, we find ourselves in this place where we don't find that we're defined by joy. And, and I think there's a reason for that. I don't think we're looking in the right place. We've been kind of catechized or discipled culturally to look for joy in these places where it's never going to be found. And so we find ourselves, instead of leaving um, our, our wake of joy, we find ourselves engaging a world that calls us to like this endless toiling and empty consumerism, right? Like culture's taught us that if you want to find joy, you just need to work harder. And the harder you work and the more you achieve, there's joy to be found at the end of this idea of corporate success. If you can just achieve enough, then there's joy joy. And so we toil and strive, and the more that we do that, the more that we can't quite catch the joy that we were chasing. Or you can just buy it, right? Like if you have enough stuff, you're going to find joy at the end of that consumerism. And that one's hard because it works for like 30 seconds. And it gives us this taste of the shadow of joy because we have the stuff. We're like, man, this is great. Now it's old and I need new stuff. And we want to buy and consume our way to joy. And advertisers are really good at selling us this. So we just end up tired in debt with a lot of stuff in our garage, right? There's this other wing of fulfillment and joy that we're getting. If you just just have enough sex, right? If you can just have the right romantic relationship, then life will be great. And so we pursue that as an end of joy. If we can just get that dialed in, then we'll be these joyful people. And if we look around, I think we can, if we're honest, answer the question that this isn't working because we don't live in a society that's particularly joyful. And as Christians, we don't always look a lot different than the world around us does especially in regards to how joyful we are. And listen, I know there's times that we mourn and there's times that we wrestle with the weighty, but there's also this part of who we are in Christ 
where we are called to reflect the joy of who he is. And I wonder if that's such a hard concept for us to live into because maybe we're looking for joy in the wrong places. And maybe we're tired and cynical because we've missed these anchor points where we find the joy that God has promised us. And so as we jump into chapter four of First Peter, this, this really has the potential to reinvigorate us and remind us of what it means to be joyful because it's gonna answer the question of where we find joy in a broken world. It's very difficult for us to find joy on the surface of everything that we're seeing and experience. And Peter is going to powerfully remind us these three areas that we're going to find joy in a broken world. And I think if we can just drink deeply from these three areas, we're going to find that we become a community that is more likely to live in the joy that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so let's jump in here in in chapter four. Um, We're going to look at these three areas, and then we're going to respond in worship and celebration of communion. And so we're going to be in verse four, um, excuse me, chapter chapter four, the first six verses, and we're going to look at what it looks like to find the joy that we've been promised. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do or non-believers want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so there's a lot going on here. Let's kind of clarify something that he says right up in verse one, because we hear that and we're like, that doesn't connect with my experience. He says, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Most of us would say, well, I've suffered in the flesh but I have not ceased from sin. If we wouldn't say that, our spouse would, right? I've suffered, but sin still seems to be an issue. So what is this trying to communicate? When he's saying that we want to take on the mind of Christ in the way he dealt with suffering, he's referencing when Jesus was on the cross, he suffered so that the will of God would be done, right? Like he died on the cross for our sins so that God's will would be accomplished and we would be forgiven. When he's saying we should take on the same mindset, what he is communicating is that when we choose obedience for the will of God, we are breaking the hold that sin has over us. So this idea of ceasing from sin, scripture says we're gonna continue to wrestle with sin until Jesus comes back the next time. What he's trying to say is that when we suffer in the flesh for the will of God, we break free of the hold and authority that sin has over us, which is why it makes sense that he then starts talking about this new way of life that we've been given, because this is the first place that we find joy. We find joy in a new way of life. He says, listen, there was a time that you sinned and acted the way that non-believers act. And he, he lists some of those characteristics, right? And like, we can see all of those and say, we know that we probably shouldn't do those. 
He says, there was a time that you engaged in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He said, that used to be how you've lived, but now you've been called into something different. You've been called into this new way of life. Don't go back to what you used to do. And the reason that he's having to explain this to them, and he says it right there, is that when this group of Christians that he's writing this to began to live into the newness of Christ, they rejected all of the old ways that they lived in. And we see that, and this just maybe looks like um, a weekend before the Florida-Georgia game when we read those, but we, we, this would actually have a little bit of a different context for the people that were reading this because a lot of that behavior was oftentimes tied to pagan idol worship. Fair question would be, did they really want to worship the pagan god or were they just there for the booze? We don't know. Reasonable question, but a lot of the behavior here had a religious pagan context to it. So, you had this group of Christians that said, we're not going to live that way anymore. The people that still lived that way started to ostracize and persecute them a little bit for not partaking in the same behaviors, for probably a variety of motivations. And so you've got to think that this group of Christians had this draw back to their old way of life. And a huge part of that draw was honestly probably acceptance. They had been told, hey, you know, you, you're different than us. You're not doing what we do. There's something wrong with you. And they began to get ostracized. And Peter's saying, listen, there is a joy that you have in this new way of life. This is better for your souls. Don't be tempted to fall back into the way you used to be. This is better for you. And as evangelicals, we have some baggage, I think, with this passage. Because for such a long time, we kind of had this message that we don't want to be legalistic. And we don't want to focus on behavior because that doesn't save you. He's not saying it saves you. That's not what this is saying. But we've kind of almost thrown the baby out with a bathwater and overcorrecting that idea of being judgmental and talking about how behavior is what our, our faith is about. And in doing so, we've forgotten that there's actually some importance put on how we behave. It doesn't save us. We don't want to judge people. And we have been called into a new way of living in Jesus Christ, and it's better for our souls. And so I think a lot of times, either because of maybe religious background or baggage or even just the messaging of the world, we hear this new life and how it's described and we almost have come to believe that we're giving something up, right? Like we're sacrificing joy to be obedient to God. If I don't go do all the fun stuff, I'm gonna miss out. God, I guess I'll sacrifice. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot of joy because I'm trading in the fun stuff for the boring stuff of the Lord. And what scripture would say is that actually... What happens when you make that exchange, when you grow into obedience and follow the life that God has laid out, not so that you'll be accepted by God, but because you have been, you have this understanding it's just better for your soul. When we live into the obedience of the life that God's called us to, when we seek holiness and forgiveness, when we seek self-control, think of the fruits of the Spirit, that there's a freedom and joy that is cultivated in our hearts and our communities when our life takes the shape that Scripture's called it to. It's not about your salvation, and we don't want to use this as a weapon. And he even writes a check in here. I don't know if you caught this. Sometimes we kind of take the oldest sibling role with society, and we say, if they would just act the right way, if those people would just go back to the way the country used to be, then God would bless us again. We need to be careful because look at what he says. Some of us were like wrongly excited about this and we missed the undertone that he's clarifying. He says in verse five, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're like, that's right. They will, no, 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 listen. 
This doesn't say that they're going to give an account to the Christians that are judging them on Facebook. This doesn't say, because who is the judge of the living and the dead? It's, it's not us. It's not us. And so this is a good reminder that as we are seeking to find joy in our new way of life, we don't use that as a way to feel superior or self-righteous and tell everybody else why they're wrong. In fact, when you read this, what he's saying is the people that are living in the old way can't understand why you live in a new way because they don't know Jesus. He's saying at the end of time, God's judgment is going to be set forth through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good behavior never saved anybody. Good behavior is a result of understanding that God's way is better. And so I wonder if some of the lack of joy that we have is because instead of trying to be a people that is pursuing a new life that God has given, sometimes because we don't fully think that's best, we want to have this syncretism where we're going to do just enough Jesus where we feel like we're being good, but not too much that we're weird and left out. Like we still want to have a little bit of fun, right? Scripture's saying, no, 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 no. There's no joy in that. You can't serve two masters. As God's people, we find a joy in the new way of living that he's given us because it allows us to glorify him and live in a unity and love that reflects God's goodness into society. And I wonder if in, in our zeal to maybe connect and help people know who God is, there have been times that we have traded obedience to fit in a little bit. And so as we examine our lives, this is not an excuse to be unloving. This is not an excuse to not share the gospel. This is not an excuse to not make the gospel contextualized in a way that people understand. It's just a call for us to find joy in this new way of life. We don't have to compromise our obedience to God so that people can understand who he is. All we're ending up compromising our joy. And listen, for me, this played out um, when I, so I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I don't know if this will surprise you, but they have a dim view of alcohol um, as a people. And so as I began to grow up and get a little bit older, I started playing a lot of hockey. And the hockey community has a different perspective on alcohol than the Southern Baptists do. I don't, um, and so that was a big part of being accepted. And I liked that. I was like, ooh, I fit in. This feels good. You know, I never fit in anywhere as a kid. I didn't always feel like I fit in at home with just some broken home issues. I didn't feel like I fit in at school and it felt good to find a place that I could fit in so I could kind of make that compromise. Well, I don't want to be judgmental. Uh, and over time, what began to happen is I began to excuse the ability to have a little bit more to drink than I needed to because, oh, well, it's helping me fit in and contextualizing the gospel. It wasn't. And I stopped living into the new life that God had called me into because I could excuse the patterns of this old life is something that was good. And I had to get to a point where I looked at alcohol and said, I can't drink anymore. This is not good for me. I'm not saying no one should drink. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what scripture says. What I'm saying is for me, the way I had to wrestle with this was that there was a severe lack of joy in my life because I was not living into life the way that God had called me to live. And alcohol was a huge issue. So I said, I'm not gonna do this anymore. This is preventing me from living into the life that God has called me to and it is robbing me of my joy. And sometimes that's what we have to do, is we have to take a look at ourselves and say, where are there areas that I am not living into the new life that God has called me into, and how do I get rid of it? I'm not saying you have to stop drinking. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe there's other areas where, like, you know, this is preventing me from living into the life that God's called me to. I am not joyful the way that I should be because there are these areas that I haven't fully taken the form that God has called me to take and how I live, right? So here's the second place. The first place is where we find a joy in our new way of life. This isn't junior varsity living. 
The way that God has called us to live is good and we shouldn't be apologetic about being a people that want to be holy. Here's the second place in verse seven. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We find joy in a common purpose because he just described what a healthy church looks like. He said that we should love one another. When he says love covers a multitude of sins, he's not saying that love excuses sin. He's saying that love, grace, and forgiveness prevent sin from creating disunity and disconnecting relationship. He talks about how we should treat one another, and he says we should use the gifts that God has given to glorify Jesus Christ. A lot of times we have a joy deficit because we are not engaged in actively using our gifts to glorify Jesus Christ. One of the purposes of the community that God has called us to be here at RCC is so that we can use the gifts that he's given. One of the primary ways we experience God's love is through other people using the gifts that he's given them. If you were here uh, at the end of May, we celebrated Matt and Becky as he was transitioning out of this role. If you were there, you remember um, at the farm. And one of the constant themes that we heard over and over and over from everyone who talked about Matt's ministry was that he shepherded their hearts in a way that made them feel known and loved. Who gave him that? Where did that come from? That was a gift of God that he put in Matt and wired him in such a way that he uniquely sees and pursues the hearts of God's people. And what happened in the wake of Matt exercising that gift? There was a massive amount of joy and healing and restoration that happened at RCC because of Matt exercising that gift. When we use God's gifts, there is a joy that happens not just in our hearts when we use them, but in the people that we use them for. And this is upside down. We live in a world that says you'll find joy based on what you get. Scripture would say you find joy based on what you give. And so where has God given you giftings to use for the joy of the people in this space? Where has God called you into spaces to be hospitable, have people over in your home, love them, provide them care, get to know them, build relationships with them, show them a safe space relationally that they've maybe never experienced? Where are you taking those opportunities in small groups or, or smaller Bible studies or discipling people? If you have any sort of musical ability at all, or are you stepping into that space to use what God has given you for the joy of his people when we gather corporately? Listen, the people that God has given us to shepherd, I think, in a very special way are the people that are off to the left here in our kids' ministry. Have you used your gifts to love the children that God has given us and show them who he is? Or our students? Have you used your gifts to help our global partners? We just got to hear a little bit about a small, I mean, we literally could have talked forever. We, we just the tip of the iceberg of what God's doing in Brazil. I, I just wonder if sometimes we have a lack of joy because there is a lack of us using our gifts for the glory of God. And so you have them. Let's use them. Let's be a people who gladly and joyfully use the gifts that God has given us. Second place that we find joy is in our common purpose. Please join God's purpose here. 
please, it's not, it's not Amway for Jesus. It's not why we want you to do this. It's, it's because you literally, God has designed this to be a place for you to express your gifts to love other people, and we want to love well. Here's the last place. I'm running short on time, so we're going to do this one quick. Okay, here's the last place. It's in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is a bit of a complicated read, and so let's define very clearly what he's talking about. Otherwise, the application can go some strange places. So he's talking about a very specific type of suffering in this passage. Scripture as a whole talks about suffering in many different ways. This specific passage, he is talking to this specific people about the suffering that happens when they're being persecuted for their faith. Scripture talks a lot about the natural suffering that everyone experiences. This is specifically talking to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. He's saying, don't be surprised when that happens. That's not strange. That is the natural result of the gospel coming into the world. So when he talks about judgment starting in the house of the Lord, that word judgment there is not describing a judge actively punishing people. That's not what it's saying. This is literally talking about the action of judging and making a determination. And so big picture, here's what he's saying is going on when we suffer. He's saying when you're persecuted, it reveals whether or not you're actually a believer. Because what would often happen at the time is when persecution would hit, people that were not serious about the faith would pretty quickly be like, yeah, I'm out. People that were Christians would be like, I'm going to suffer for the gospel because I already have eternal victory in Jesus Christ. And nothing you can do is going to hurt me. And so what he's saying about like, judgment starting in the house of the Lord is that one of the results of suffering is it strengthens and reveals our faith. He's saying we can rejoice in that. We can find joy in our obedience. That's the last place that we find joy. When we are obedient to what God has called us to do, there is a joy that comes from that because it is re-anchoring our hearts in the eternal victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's huge. And so this can be a little bit of a difficult passage for us to try to apply. By and large, we don't experience persecution for our faith. If you say you're a Christian, very little in our, in our culture is going to happen to you. Some people might look at you sideways and call you backwards, but like by and large, not a lot of persecution is going to happen to us because we're Christians. It's just not, especially based on what we say. And so for us to say, man, how, how am I, how, how, how can I be obedient when I'm being persecuted? That can be tricky to answer because we don't experience this type of persecution. So let's try to intelligently apply this to where we do experience some difficulty with our faith. By and large, we have difficulty in our faith when we really want to walk out being obedient because that obedience might cause us to suffer or not get what we want. Sometimes we trade the obedience to God for the temporary success that the world has to offer. So for us, joy and obedience might be 
in a business environment saying, I'm not gonna be dishonest and make more money. I'm actually gonna be honest even if it costs me cash or a promotion. Difficult obedience might be, I'm gonna handle sexuality and relationships in a way that might make my peers look at me odd and reject me, and I might not get to date that person. Because they think I'm backwards. It might be. Our, our persecution might be more of the opportunities that we miss out on because we live in a society where we're fairly free to do whatever we want. And so for us, for us, active persecution is not as much of a threat as the passive persecution of what happens when we trade the eternal obedience and rewards that God have for us for the temporary pleasures and comforts of right now, right? That's just, that's kind of how this plays out for us. And so my question is, do we lack joy because we lack obedience? Are there just maybe some spaces in our life where we've said, God, I don't want to take your word too seriously here because it's going to cost me something I don't really want to pay. And the aftermath of that is, is us saying, well, man, I don't have the joy that Scripture talks about. Well, it's because we're looking for it in the wrong place. Now, here's the good news. And here's where we're going to close. For a lot of us, we hear this passage talk about judgment starting in the house of the Lord, and it deflates us a little bit. Because we can think of the times where maybe the world hit us and we didn't choose obedience. Like, man, am I disqualified? Is that it? Am I out? You know, I have had some persecution and I feel like I kind of walked away or I haven't really been obedient in some significant places in my life. So is, is, am I gonna have the fiery judgment on me? Does God not want me anymore? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. And he talks about this up in the very beginning of this, right? In, in verse six, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, the people that had died, not that were actively dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The power of the gospel says that even when we were dead in our sense, Christ's death and resurrection made us new, forgave us of our sins, and gave us access to God as his children. Because of the death of Jesus, we've been accepted as children of God. And so when we have sinned, we have the ability to repent and to come to the Lord and not fear being shamed or rejected, but we can be accepted and known and loved because of the death of Jesus on the cross. And so when we read these passages and we just are confronted with places that we feel like we failed, we don't have to hang on and be defined by those failures. We can exchange our failure and our shame for the grace and mercy of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we prepare to celebrate communion, I want to caution us that as believers, we don't have to celebrate timidly or with shame. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can freely come to God with repentant hearts and trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross covers our sins and creates new life in us where we have the opportunity to freely and passionately live lives of joyful obedience. And so I don't know where this hits you. I don't know if this is encouraging and saying, yes, God, I knew that I was on the right path. I want to persevere. I don't know if this is convicting in a healthy way where you can say, you know, there's some places I need to make some adjustments. Or I don't know if this meets you in maybe a dark place where you're like, man, I don't feel like I've done any of this. But here's the good news. Regardless of where you fall, 
Because of Jesus, if we are followers of Christ, we can come to the table today and celebrate as God's children who had the opportunity to walk in the newness of life that was won for us in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna take this time to celebrate who Jesus is and walk into our community as joyful people who are obedient, engaged in loving one another, and we're gonna be people who continue to be persistent in our faith. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come and that we can hear the greatness of who you are and how you've loved us. God, we just ask that as we hear scripture taught, that you would guard our hearts against misunderstanding or believing that you don't love us. But God, help us to be rightly obedient to your word. Help us to be people that repent from our sins. Help us to be people who radically love the people you've put in our lives and help us to be persistent in how we follow you even when it costs us. So God, I pray that you would just shield us from any voices in us that wanna drag us down into guilt today. But help us to repent and line up with who you've made us and help us to joyfully partake of this reminder of why we can be called your children. It's in Jesus' name I pray.